With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hey everyone, I'm Cindy Conte, and welcome to another edition of the Best Women's Boxing Show, period. In partnership with Blue Wire Network. I'm Cindy Conte, and my beautiful co-host. And I am Giandra LaBeouf, and we have an amazing guest today. And I had this whole plan of how I wanted to interview him, but... The reason why he's here is his book. So I'm going to go directly to his words and directly from the book. Andre Ward is married to his high school sweetheart, Tiffany, together with their five children. They live in the San Francisco Bay Area. He is a retired world champion, a Hall of Fame boxer, a licensed minister, a youth pastor at the Well Christian Community Church in Livermore, California. And we're going to talk to him today about this incredible book and his illustrious career. So we welcome you, Andre Ward. Thank you so much for joining us. You know, I've been following the movement. I've been seeing what you guys have been doing. You've been doing a lot of great work in the, in the boxing game. So I'm happy to be on with you. It's our pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, you know, Andre, I have to be forthcoming uh, when I've known you, but I didn't know you. And when I read the book, I read the PDF first. And yeah. I'm glad I read it because I sat there and I took so many notes on your life. And the one thing that really stood out, and I didn't even watch the documentary until after the book. So I, I was so mind blown. I didn't realize the extensive drug use in your family. Like you've talked about it, but I did not understand. It was generational with your mother and your father. And thank God your mom is still here to uh, with your grandkids. But there, you know, we're going way, way back when you were that kid swallowing 10 baggies. I can't believe it. Did you ever think back then, why did I do that? If that exploded, you wouldn't be here anymore to even write this book and have the career that you have? Well, I mean, you're right. You know, the the drug usage and just the alcohol abuse, all that stuff goes back generations. And, you know, you don't choose the family that you're born into. You know, you just you get here and then you start trying to figure things out. And, um, you know, I knew my mother was a was a was a full blown addict. You know, she wasn't there for most of my life. I knew she was in, you know, San Francisco and um my dad was a functional addict. You know, he would go to work every day, like I mentioned in the book, but yet he would come home and he would have to deal with that addiction on a day-to-day -day basis. But it got real when I started dealing with depression, uh, uh, heaviness, you know, adolescence, not knowing how to function with it. And the outlet was to drink and to numb myself with drugs and alcohol. So that's when it really started coming full circle. And I started realizing, that, man, this is deep, it's heavy. And then you start dabbling in the streets and it's like, that same drive that I had in boxing, that same drive that I had in a sport, you think you put that same mentality toward the streets. Like, man, I'm going to own this block. I'm going to own the street, you know? And I'm grateful, man. You said, did I do, do I think about that moment where, you know, I had to swallow the drugs and I was running from the police? I, absolutely. I mean, I mean, I don't think people realize how, how easily those bags could have, you know, burst in my, in my system and I could have died. This stuff happens every day, every day. So um, that's why when you guys saw me, 
in 2004 and then those that followed my career as a professional, I hope that gives a little bit of credence to, to why I talk the way that I talk, to move the way that I moved and I was the way that I was because I knew I'd been given a second chance. I've had such a greater appreciation for you and your career and reading these insights into who you are really makes me examine the interactions that we've had with you over the years of conversations. This is a very candid, it takes a lot of bravery. What I, One of the main things that jumped out for me from the book is your voice is very strong. Mm -hmm. As I read through it, it was clear you were heavily involved in the writing of the book. It is your voice. Like I could hear, I could almost hear you speaking as I read through it. So if you could talk a little bit about working with Nick, working with Julie to make sure that this was indeed your voice, your story, and in the way you wanted to tell it. Well, all those people you mentioned, including my wife, uh, Tiffany, they all did a phenomenal job throughout the process. But like everything that I do, whether it's my career, whether it's business, whether it's ministry, raising my kids, like I'm very hands-on because I've always like been very aware that, that if this crumbles, whatever it may be, it's going to fall on me. So I always try to put my best foot forward. And I'm just, a, I'm a creative person. And, you know, I like projects like this. And I think that's one of my hidden gifts is writing. You know, like I'm still learning the structure and the format of writing, but I have a, the ability and the gift to like see something and then know where it needs to go and how it needs to sound. So I was very, very involved with the process, as you mentioned, very, very important to me. I got one opportunity to write my autobiography the right way. And that's what I wanted, what you just said, is for people to say, that sounds like you. And there were sections where it didn't sound like me and we would have to restructure or get rid of them. Um, but, you know, I'm not an avid reader. You know, I, I read, but not not like that. But this, I've had so many people say, this is the first book I've read in years. Or this is only, some people say, it's the second book I read my whole life. I wanted it to be an easy read, but an impactful read. Absolutely. When when I got the book or when I got the PDF, uh, I read majority of it. And then when I actually got the book, I finished it. And I was like, wait, I need to go back to the PDF because I can't highlight three, four or one fourth of the book. And yeah, then, yeah, yeah. But it, you know, for the for the readers and I even told Giandra this and even Julie, since I didn't really I didn't know you. And when I would interview you a couple of times, I'm like, I now understand why Andre Ward is the way he is with media, with certain things, why his faith is so strong. Like I didn't I didn't know until I read your book. There's one thing I know people want to talk about your career. I want to talk about fetish with toes. What <laughs> is <laughs> but Come on, it boomerang? Clapped me up when I'll you, you, I'll go there. you when you had your brother, when you first met your wife, your now wife, Tiffany, you're like, Jonathan, go check out her feet. And I love the way you wrote it. And then when Tiffany wrote the way she saw it, she's like, why does he want to look at my feet? And it's funny because I'm like, you dumped a girl in sixth grade because her feet were ugly. What is it? The toes? Is it? Is it? So bad. Is, are they fat feet? Are they like hammer toes? I just didn't like them, and <laughs> I feel bad to this day. I did that. That wasn't right. That wasn't right. There's a so little she, girl out there somewhere right now, like. I know. It's so bad. It's, it's me. Like, I was young. Forgive me. You know, I'm still trying to find myself, trying to figure life out. I wouldn't say I have a fetish with feet. I, I I just knew that I wasn't gonna date a girl or marry a girl with ugly feet. I just knew that. And I'm a shoe person too, and I don't know how that correlates, but like I that's the first thing that I I I always do when I see a person, I look at their shoes. 
Yeah. And I've been like that since I've been a kid. I used to call my grandma and say, Grandma, what shoes you wearing? I don't know where it came from. My dad used to always say, man, if, if this boy gets some money, he's going to have a whole lot of shoes. And I got a whole lot of shoes in my closet. It's just always been a thing for me. But I just knew at a young age, like, my woman got to have pretty toes. And <laughs> got pretty toes. <laughs> it must have been a dream come true when you got involved with Jordan. So but instead oh, of going down the rabbit hole too deep with that, but what's the most expensive shoe like sneaker that you have? Because, you know, there's a lot of sneaker heads out there, but I'm sure you are a real sneaker head because you can tap right into the source. So what's the, the baddest, most expensive, rarest or favorite shoe you have? Man, that's hard because I'm a little out of touch with the price range. And I hope that don't sound wrong, but I, I do, you know, I got a, a a lifelong partnership with Jordan brand. I will have stuff in my, in my, in my possession. And I don't even know what I have sometimes. I just know visually I like that. And I'll have somebody stop me like, bro, do you know how much them cost on the, on the secondary market? Do you know how hard it is to get them? And I'm like, nah, they just kind of came at the front door. So um, I like a lot of them. My favorite Jordans are probably uh, the ones and 11s. And I like the ones because I can I can dress them up or dress them down. I can wear, wear them in a suit. And there a lot of times when I'm commentating, I'll have like Jordans on, I'll have ones on. Um, and But the Travis Scotts recently, I love the Travis Scotts because they're different. And again, I can dress them up or dress them down. I can wear shorts with them, suit with them. And those are my favorite. And they're probably the most expensive right now. And those are the ones, like when I get those, like typically with, with Jordan, like you have an allotment that you have per year. And I can get as many pair of one pair of shoes that I want, not the Travis Scott stuff. You get one pair per athlete. So when I wear those in wow. the street, those get the biggest reaction right now. Wow. Okay. We, we want the Travis Scott, Andre Ward, Jordan, yeah, keep collaboration. collaboration, right? Yeah, do that. Christmas every day for you. I am jealous. <laughs> Imagine opening your front door, ooh, a new pair of kicks every day. Now, it's, oh, it's, I'm not gonna lie, it's a real thing. That's what happens. I love that. It, is your happens. is Tiffany also a a, a shoe girl or she she's become care? one? Like because of me, she's not as bad as me. But like like I pick out a lot of her stuff. She's like, I'm going to just let you do it. And I pick out her clothes a lot of times. Not all of them, but there's times I'm like, I like that. She's like, you like that? Like, I like that. Get that. So I just have like a, I don't know. I just kind of got that eye for stuff like that and a good feel for clothes and shoes and what may look good on me or somebody else. So we have fun with it. We go shopping and like, I pick out a lot of her stuff for her. You never know, Andre, that could be the next step as a, you're a fashion designer or do a collab with somebody like Prada maybe Balenciaga, somebody. I'm going to see, athletes are being, you saw that with Louis Vuitton, Pharrell has brought in a lot of the athletes wearing yeah. million dollar bags, but people will buy it because LeBron James is holding this bag. So I think you're up there. Pharrell, if you're listening, Louis Vuitton, oh, I'm just saying. We get it, we'll get a, we, we will gladly take a finder's fee. Michelle, <laughs> you spoke exactly. into existence. Yeah, it's all good. Or even keep it Bay Area funky. Maybe it might be like an E40 type of, that would be super dope. Like a yeah, Bay man, Area. I, I love that kind of stuff, man. I'm going to put it like this. I had, a, I had a guy tell me one time, he was like, man, you remind me of myself. You got a critical eye. And I was like, what you mean? He was like, anything you do or a part of, like you have the ability to pick a nice pair of shoes or to build a good, a uh, strong business. 
He said, and, and anything in between. He said, you just have the ability to do that. And I didn't know that about myself, but I'm like that with most things. They say, how you do some things is how you do all things. So rather, I, if you say, man, I want you to put this, this desk together in this chair, I'm trying to build it to the best of my ability because I want to look at the instructions and say, I did it the right way. Or if you put me in a boardroom, I want to make sure that I'm doing the same thing. So that's just that's just me. That's kind of how I am. That's a great segue, that discerning eye into going back into your book and the path of your life and the path of your of your career and the decision making, working with Virgil for many, many years in an industry where people try to snatch fighters, try to get between uh, a fighter and their team and for their own personal gain. But Virgil really held you down. Like I knew you guys were a close unit. You worked well together. You've been together for so long, but to really read the depth of you, your wife, your now wife, when you were dating, living with them, and they really hate Virgil and his wife really loving you and, and mentoring you and just providing a safe space for you. What is life with Virgil now on this side of it after having those early dreams and now being on this side of life with Virgil? Uh, it's different. You know, the, the boxing is definitely uh, was a lot of our interaction. But at the same time, that's my godfather. So, you know, we talk on the phone, uh, we text. I don't see him as much as I would like to. That's part probably his fault and my fault. You know, I know where to find him. He's going to be in that boxing gym. Um, but it's hard for me sometimes to be around a boxing gym because I start missing it. Um, you know, I start going down memory lane because it's the same gym that I that I trained in for most of my career. So I step through those doors and I just all of us immediately I start thinking about the days that I came in there and training camp, how I used to feel, my last two fights, all that stuff starts coming back to me, even though it's been six years. So it's hard for me to be in the gym even for short periods of times. But I think me and him got to do a little bit better job of connecting with each other because life is short. And even though the boxing was a, was a big part of our life, we are Godson and Godfather and that's a bond for life. You know, there was a thing when you said life is short, uh, your father, Duke, he was your mother, your father, he fed you, he clothed you uh, when your mother was going through her own issues in rehab. And when he, are you all right, Giandra? <laughs> I, I just, I'm sorry. I heard something crazy. I was like, <laughs> Oh my God. Sorry. Sorry, you guys. Um, your dad is here. Your your dad's spirit is here. Sorry, Duke. We being cool to your son, I swear. You all right? You good? <laughs> I know. Okay. Go ahead. Well, go ahead. Go so, ahead. When uh sadly he did pass away right before the Olympics, and a lot of things were coming towards you. Like you you mentioned, you whispered in your in his ear that I'm gonna finish everything that we started. And this gentleman came up to you in the Olympic Village at the bus saying you belong here, things like that. Do you think if your father didn't pass away at that time and he went through with you during the Olympic trials and Olympics, do you think your career would be the same as it is now? Do you think that path would have been different? That's a good question. That's a good question. Um, my dad was, well, first I'm going to say, I think it would be very similar, if not the same. Um my dad was, you know, a very strong-willed person, and I know he would have had opinions about certain things. So it would have been an interesting dynamic uh, for me to grow into manhood and know when to take my dad's advice and when to tell him, Dad, I got it. So I think that dynamic would have been interesting. I don't know how he would have influenced me on the business side, boxing side, but 
to my father's credit, very wise man. And that's why he passed me off to Verge early on because he saw like, man, I'm, this is too much. Like I'm too hard on him. I'm not the right fit for him. And, it, and you know, it's hard for a father to do that. And he passed me off to a whole nother person that we were just getting to know. So I think my dad would have definitely played his role and played his position well, but the dynamic would have been interesting to see him respect my manhood and then me being confident in my manhood and knowing when to tell him, dad, I got it. I got it. It's an interesting dy dynamic. The entry point for so many young men fighters is with their father and working with them. And we've seen lots of varieties of it from Tio to Shane Mosley to Floyd to Danny Garcia. What is some insight? You mentioned that your father, Duke, and you mentioned in a book that he was hard and that's how you ultimately connected with Virgil. And now you having your own sons. What, what insight can you give us about the dynamic about father-son relationships who manage to get it to the top level, why it works, some, why sometimes the separation might be a good thing. Just any, have you ever had any thoughts about those yeah. duos? I think about it all the time. I'm not, I'm not a person that says that they can't work. I don't, I think that's going too far. Um, I think it's very difficult for them to work because there is that father-son dynamic and there's money involved. So for me, my kids playing sports, doing the stuff that they do, I only have to try to not be that dad, you know, once or twice a week when they're out there playing their games and stuff like that and not be overbearing and, and stuff like that. But just I couldn't imagine there being a business component where you're actually paying me. And we got media cameras in our face and we're doing interviews and we got we got we got stuff going on. So. It's hard, but it's not impossible. I think I think uh, Bill and Devin are doing a great job. I'm sure I'm sure they have their moments, like every father and son. But they keep it offline. They deal with it like they're supposed to. You can't argue with what Bill has done with his son to this point. A lot of criticism that people have had along the way, but you can't argue with what they've done. I think the main a couple of things is you can't try to live your life through your son. Mm. You have to respect him as a man. But you also have to know that I'm always here and I'm going to be your daddy until this thing is over with. So I'm, I'm an ear for you. I got words of wisdom for you, but I got to know when to let you go and do your own thing. Because what happens is, is these guys, they start being overbearing. Then that breeds resentment. And then you see the fight. Mm -hmm. And I just got to the point. I haven't always got around. I was a young father trying to figure it out. So I bumped my head and made my mistakes with my first two boys. Um, then I started figuring it out. But the main thing is you don't want your son to resent you. You may get to the mountaintop, you may make a lot of money, but if your son resents you at the end of the day, you lost. So that's the big thing. And son, we're going to be father and son. We're going to bump our heads sometimes, but we always going to get through it. But I respect you as a man. And if I can do that, the relationship will last and it'll be fine. I mean, respect to you because you were a very young father, uh, even, even when your second son was born. You were, what, 16, yeah. I believe, and then 19. So you were still basically a child, okay. having a child. Yeah. And trying to figure it out and having a career, telling Tiffany, I'm going to be an Olympian. And she's like, yeah, okay, whatever. But mm -hmm. it, you you spoke everything to an exist to existence. Uh, but then I saw on, I think it was your Instagram, I'm not sure, where one of your sons was trying to box you, like just in the kitchen. And I think the other son kicked your butt in chest. I mean, <laughs> I, I think maybe you let him win. I'm not sure, but I'm you were like, wait it. a minute. <laughs> You're not the goat in that kid in that household. <laughs> everybody, listen, everybody, whether I'm playing ping pong, pool, everybody wants to be me. 
and my family. They they just rally around. Everybody want to team up and beat me because they know how, how how much I hate to lose, and they know I'm not gonna be happy about it. And I'm a, I might be a sore winner too. Like I talk a lot of smack. I, I make people, you know, I make them feel bad when they lose. So everybody's trying to beat me. So he he actually did get me on that chess game in the documentary. Um, and you saw me. I was like, oh wait wait wait, let's talk, let's talk this through. Um, you know, it happens. My my kids are very competitive too. With that competitive, uh, another part of the book that was particularly meaningful to me to read was just dedicating a whole chapter to the Kovalev saga. That really surprised me because I didn't want to go through and read the chapter listings. I wanted to just mm. turn the page and it'd be fresh to me. And that was a very, both of us were in our media careers when that that saga was happening and watching it in real time and how it played out. And just your telling of it was so respectful and so interesting to provide us the insights, injury insights. I don't want to give too much away because I want people to read the whole chapter, but it was fascinating to read it from on this side of it. In the writing of this book, did you come to any new insights about that time in your life that you thought, oh, I wish I would have had these thoughts then to navigate it differently? Or would you have even navigated anything about that time in your life differently? I don't think I would have done anything different, uh, you know, for Kovalev 1 or Kovalev 2 before or after. I think I, you know, I'm I'm pleased with how everything went. I think that one of the insights that I had was that I just, you know, I was so focused and locked in on coming out on top in both of those fights that I didn't really stop and realize how much I I had went through uh, for Kovalev 1. I mean, I did, but I didn't really, like, when I was reliving everything, writing this book, I'm like, dude, that's crazy. Like, we really shouldn't have been fighting that night. But I didn't really have a choice. Like, I, I, I'm in a new relationship with Rock Nation, and I, I can't pull out of a fight. Like, I don't want to pull out of the fight. I'm trying to get that check. I'm trying to get that win. And I know what everybody's going to say, oh, you're scared of Kovalev. And, you know, I'm already deep in the training camp. I didn't want to stop and have to restart. So it was a lot working against me. And I'm grateful for the for the voice like Verge, you know, like there was a few people around me. They panicked and was like, oh, we got to we got to pull out of the fight. Verge is like, no, this, this, God's got you. And I'm like, I hear you and I feel you. But do you see my knee? He said, your knee is going to be fine. And I'm a person that likes to have every box checked before I go to war even though I know that's not always a reality. And man, it was a lot of boxes unchecked. I'm missing sparring days. I'm having to modify my training. I take a day off thinking the knee will be better. The next day comes, it's still swollen. I take another day off. And for somebody like me, who's in his head a lot, that's, man, that's hard. And all the way down to the to a few hours before we went to the arena, the T-Mobile arena, I got my doctors in my, in my, in my rented house in Vegas uh, draining my knee like I'm in disbelief like dude I'm getting ready to face the most dangerous man I've ever faced and this is what I'm dealing with so um and that's the fight that like critics and stuff they try to hold against me but it's funny because I don't think you can find a person on the face of the earth that can say they think that I lost by more than a point or two right they don't acknowledge the ones that feel I won by a point or two I've always contended that if you feel I lost, man, I can't argue with that. If that man's hand got raised that night, man, I'd have had to deal with that and say, man, I respect to you. But you can't call a robbery. You can't call a fight a robbery when it's a one or two point difference. Like you lose credibility. It's too many swing rounds, meaning rounds that can go either way. And it's really my crowning achievement. Like the second fight was cool. 
but I had to do something that a lot of people don't do. I had to come off the deck. I had to come from behind. And I showed, if you didn't know it before that fight, that I was a true champion. So I love that fight. Kovalev won is, is my favorite fight. Uh, wow. To this day, that's still a debatable topic with so many writers. <laughs> one question I have to, to uh, one topic real fast before we wrap up. Jeander uh, and I always talk about it. Many, even before we even had our show, you had a secret weapon that uh, Virgil Hunter put you in when you were young, a young kid. You did yeah. Pilates. You did. Pil I have always preached to fighters, do Pilates, do ballet, because football players do it. You're light on your feet. It elongates you. It works your core. And when I read that, I'm like, oh, thank you, Jesus. He, he did it. Can you explain and tell fighters why? Because they think it's so, so girly and so bitch ass to do that. Yeah. Explain to them why I, I, they should be doing things like this. I thought it was just for the ladies too. And I remember when Verge, Verge, like, I'm grateful for this man because he he had vision. He introduced this to me before the Olympics. I'm like, man, I'm not doing Pilates. Like that, I said, I said my exact word, that's for girls. Like I'm not doing, he said, bro, listen, I studied this. He started telling me about Joseph Pilates, used to be a boxer. He did all the research because Verge is a, he's very well read. So I did it begrudgingly. And man, we, like work on the bully muscles a lot, like the abs you can see. There's a whole nother layer of abs in there that, that we don't even touch because like I said, we're just focused on what we can see. Then Pilates gets the deep work. And that's why I didn't always look the strongest, but I've never faced a person that was stronger than me. I knew how to have a strong base. I knew how to, when I fought Kovalev, like I could almost pick him up. I'm like, bro, you're not strong. And that's just the years and years and years of building my body from the inside out. And it also helped me with injuries, right? Because if I just did like heavy strength and conditioning and didn't balance it out with like a Pilates, I would always get injured. But when I did the, the two together, it was the perfect mix. So I personally would recommend Pilates for every athlete, every fighter. It's not just a ladies thing. It's a lot of men doing it. In fact, the founder of it used to be the fighter. Mm -hmm. a, a professional ballerina and a boxer. And that's what hooked you. You're like, oh, he was a boxer. Yes, yeah, just a Pilates guy. See? Andre Ward, pound for pound, Hall of Famer, said it himself. I bet you everyone's be like, you know what? I'm going to go try Pilates. Someone said it. That's yeah. going to be in all our interviews. Watch. Yeah. Be like, yeah. Andre Ward proof. All right. Wait, well, I do have one more thing. Oh, one more thing. I, I'm sorry, because it is the holiday season and you are a minister. You and your wife are ministers and you are sped, uh, spreading God's word to people and are providing that resource to people. So just some uh, message of hope. It's a really tough time in the world. People are going through a lot. Um, just some words of, of healing, of wisdom that you would wanna impart upon people who might be struggling, who might be seeking God, who think they're, they're not sure. Like, what would you impart upon them this holiday season? Well, a couple of things. I would say, you know, around this season, you know, it's always a lot of pressure to spend a lot of money and buy people things. And, you know, I get that part of it. Um, try not to let that get you. Cause that also brings a lot of depression and a lot of heaviness because people may not be able to do it. So they're like, man, I can't do what, what I want to do or what I feel I should do. And they feel bad, man. Just try to enjoy your family. If you got one person in your life, it could be a friend. Just try to enjoy them just for being them. It's not always about the gifts and the cars and this and that. You can spend no money, man, to have a wonderful time this holiday season. You got life in your body. And if you got, if you still kicking and got life in your body, 
your time ain't up yet. There's still a lot to accomplish. There's still a lot to do. And I would also tell people, those that are struggling, to take some time to look up. I try to carry life, and I still do sometimes, and I got to catch myself on my own shoulders and do it all myself and try to figure it out. And sometimes God allows you to feel that heaviness and that pressure to get you to look up and to humble yourself and cry out for help and say, man, I need some help. And I would just encourage anybody who's listening today to do that. I think it'd be the best decision you've ever made. There is no downside to it. You don't have to understand everything to do that. It just takes a little bit of humility and a little bit of willingness and God will respond to you. And lastly, uh, your connection with your minister and another part of the book, we could talk to you forever, part of the book that was particularly meaningful. And reading through that section made me think of Malcolm X's connection with Muhammad Ali and how ministers play an important part of relationships with fighters in a way that's different than their manager, the promoter. Um, just a little bit about your connection with your, your minister and how that impacted your boxing career and the way you move and negotiate going forward. Cause Man, you I, could, I could go on and on for days about, about my pastor, Napoleon Kaufman, um, great man of wisdom. Uh, but he ain't got a lot of fluff in, him. you know, he, he's a real, one. he's real, he's real in the faith and the people that he's over like myself and my family, he, he takes the relationship very serious. And it was, and, and I know it was a godsend and he came in my life because he had already walked the road that, that I was getting ready to walk as a professional athlete, six years with the Raiders, retired and went into ministry. And I knew early on that that was going to be my call. It may not look exactly like his, but I knew it was going to be a lot of similarities. And he's just been there at these key moments and times in my life, you know, going through the lawsuit with James Prince. You know, he was the one at the negotiating table, listening to Prince's argument, hearing my argument and, and, and helping us work through that. Second time we had an off right before we signed the, the Rock Nation deal, he was there again. When I thought about retirement, he was there. You know, when I got get phone calls for opportunities and I don't know what I should do, he's there. So now I'm just grateful for that man of God. Um, I don't know where I would be without him. And we all need we all need somebody, man. We need help. We can't figure this thing out on ourselves or figure this thing out ourselves. I'm just grateful I had some some key voices in my life to help me navigate this thing called life because it, it is difficult at times. And on that closing note, um, I want to share the one thing that has become literally everyone reads it, everyone talks about it uh, whenever they need that inspo. I believe you close the gap. We got to win every single round. This is what greatness is. Robinson got up, Leonard got up, Ali got up, you got up, do it in the Virgil voice, in the very soft Virgil voice. So <laughs> on, on that note, uh, thank you, Virgil. I mean, uh, thank you, Virgil. Thank you, Andre Ward, and you guys. His book, Killing the Image, is available. I know yeah. you're doing a signing, Barnes & Noble. Uh, yeah. You also uh, watch his uh, documentary on Showtime. It is called uh, SOG, Son of God, The Book of Ward. We love this book. We can't wait to get this I autograph. read through this book this super is fast. such yeah. a great book. Thank you I, for taking uh, the time. Thank you. Us. You guys keep doing what you're doing. I appreciate your work. Thank, thank you. you. Have a great day. All right, y'all. Take care. Giandra. Can you believe how great that interview went? We got him laughing about his fetish and his toes. <laughs> it was good to spend some time with him. Uh, you know, whenever we can get a fighter, when they're past the, the training stage of their career where they can be relaxed and really be themselves, it's awesome. So I was very appreciative of his time with uh, Andre Ward. So shout out to him and shout out to us. 
I know it's a uh, shout out to Julie. Thank you so much for making this happen. We love the book. We love the uh, documentary. We mm-hmm. really just love talking to him because I'm glad that uh, we didn't really talk about his fights except the Kovalev. And it's so funny that he said that was his favorite one because to this day, like I said, that it it's such a controversial uh, debate of who won and the low blow and whatnot. But good for him. You know what? He said his truth and y'all got to deal with it. Yeah, you, you either like it or you don't. But uh, I think the other parts that that really um, I'm so happy I asked that question about his dad. And then, of course, I felt like his spirit was here knocking stuff over and scaring you. <laughs> but <laughs> but, it, you know, for him to say that's a really good question, because it makes you think, you know, his life could have been completely different if things were different. Mm-hmm. So and just the trajectory that of of father sons and how that affects and you know respecting each other as men and you know women we go through to a, an extent when we become mothers and we you know deal with our own mothers and our own family and aunts and all that but to be that in a situation where you're exchanging money and you're kind of like the employee in a sense yeah. it's a it's a very interesting dynamic and we've seen tons of examples that work and tons that don't. And uh, for him, his father had that insight that he needed someone else. And yeah, he let hard. that ego go. It's hard to let the ego go. No one wants to entrust their kid to a whole nother man. Uh, yeah. And, and it's, it's, it's really true because of um, you as a father, you feel like I don't want to fail my kids. But he felt at that time, he's like, I'm going to fail my kids if I don't do this. And the way uh, Virgil and Millie, his wife, took him on as if they were on their, their own kids. And he let them, he really let Andre live his life and let him learn and, you know, understand the things that he's doing is detrimental to his health and to his life. But eventually he he came back and all these things had him turn to God and and now the life that Andre Ward has, which is, it's, it's, it's amazing. His story is, it's, it's tragic. It's beautiful. It's humbling. And it's, it's Andre Ward's story. And he should send us some sneakers. I mean, they're just right? showing up um, eight and a half for me. I don't know what size you wear, Sim, but you know, seven thirty-seven. <laughs> I'm really curious now with his sneaker collection, like imagine he's like, yo, you know how expensive those are? It's like, oh, really? I guess they're you get them at the front rare. door. But that's why, man, that, man, if you've got, if you're out there and you have Travis Scott Jordans, man, you are sitting on a gold mine. He's a Jordan athlete for life and he only gets one pair. Right. I wonder how much, I wonder how many Michael Jordan gets. Think about that. I should ask if he's the athlete and it's his brand. Does he only get one pair also? Has that, I don't have, I don't think I've ever seen Jordan wear a Travis Scott, but yet I don't know. He wear them them deacon sevens with them disco boots that he used to like to wear <laughs> courtside when you see michael jordan i don't even think michael jordan wears sneakers anymore i've only seen him with them disco boots <laughs> but yeah this was uh it was a really good interview and i know that he doesn't like to talk to a lot of people and i was really happy that he came on our show and the fact that he said he's been following us that like i love that oh it's like oh I'm like, Shout all right. I know. Thank you so much. But Giandra, uh, I there are so uh, we we like you said we could have talked to him about so many things. So there's so many things we want to talk to him about. But at least we got some of the things. And guys, ladies, Pilates, Andre Ward told y'all he's been doing I it for a long time. Up. I mean, yeah, it's a great read. Even if you're not a boxing person, 
just the, a story of triumph, adversity, a faith-driven life, um, needing support. You don't have to be perfect for God. You don't have to be perfect for man. It's just, it's a good read for sure. It really is. Well, Giandra, it's another one in the can for us. I'm so excited. Uh, we have so many shows coming up. We have so many interviews coming up. And make sure you guys, if you can't watch us, you guys can always listen to us on podcasts. We are in partnership with the Blue Wire Network. If you guys don't know, then if you guys are in Vegas, come stop by the studio. We might be there. We may not be there at the Winds, at the Wind Hotel. Yes, bougie us. But um, again, Giandra, uh, I can't wait to see you again for our next interview. Yes, and we got a lot of them coming. It's going to be a really, really good time. Make sure you listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all your favorite platforms. You'll find us there. And share, like, subscribe, tell your friends. Got to get the word out because, you know, this is a good get for us. I think probably we're, I, you know, I'm just going to, I'm just going to pat her own back. I, we're probably the only two female and female reporters in boxing that probably got him. Yeah. I'm trying I to want to say. No, I think you're right. I think I you're think right. So. I mean, we, outside yeah. of, Pon well, no, because Poncher works for top, well, yeah. we'll cut that out. Yes, okay. I agree with you. I think we are. So this is very exciting. And I hope you all enjoyed our conversation because we definitely did. Yeah. And that's, and for people like, well, no, they, the, this lady did, in our space, in our boxing space, <laughs> not exactly. like, not like Fox sports and all that, not the big ones. But yes, all right, uh, you guys tune in to all of our episodes. I'm Cynthia Conte. I'm Giandra LaBeouf. And thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Best Women's Boxing Show, period, in partnership with Blue Wire Network. See you guys at the fights. Bye, guys.